This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI Audio's on air community, and everyone's invited. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being with Rummy and I today. Um, unfortunately, we don't start the show with the greatest news. Queen Elizabeth II has died. This is a special report from ABC News. I'm Aaron Katursky. Queen Elizabeth has died. The longest-serving monarch in British history was 96. She ruled for more than 70 years. The Queen had been in declining health, and this morning Buckingham Palace issued a statement saying her doctors had concerns about Her Majesty's health. Members of the royal family were summoned to Balmoral Castle in Scotland, where the Queen had been staying. Queen Elizabeth was on the throne more than 70 years, a time of unprecedented change for the monarchy and for the world. Her reign spanned 13 American presidents and 15 British prime ministers. The flag atop Buckingham Palace now at half-staff. Queen Elizabeth has died. She was 96. I'm Aaron Katursky. This has been a special report from ABC News. Don't even have to mention, Rummy, off the top, how much the Queen meant to Canada as as an overseeing monarch mm-hmm. and who we knew um, and as a, a country underneath the monarchy in that sense. And we've talked about it on the show, uh, the definite importance. But kind of interested to find out what is happening over in the UK, the feelings of people who definitely have grown up with this lady and know her so well, maybe even have, have been to public appearances by the Queen. So we would like to welcome in uh, one of the hosts of a Double Tap, uh, Stephen Scott. He joins us. Stephen, thank you very much for jumping in here to kick off the show with us. We want to give you the floor. Um, you, as this is so fresh, What's the reaction that you and others would have? Uh, well, first off, hi, Kelly. Hi, Rami. Uh, what a day to be here. And um, such a sad day. It really is truly a sad, sad day for this country. And I think, you know, we've been watching the news here for the best part of five hours now straight. Most TV networks now have gone to full news coverage and will stay that way in this country now for probably the, the best part of the next 10 days. Yeah. Um, and what is you know, I guess for most people has been a case of through the course of their workday here, um, hearing about the news of the Queen's ill health and then learning the news that, you know, just just only what feels like moments ago, the announcement being made that the Queen had died. And um, I think utter shock. And, you know, I, I certainly felt it. I, I was watching the news all day and, and hearing. And there's always that moment where you think, well, maybe she'll pull through. Maybe it'll be OK. Maybe it'll be fine. Um, maybe there'll be some good news, even though you know, even though you mm. you kind of know yourself that this is this is likely to be it. Um, and you know, you don't have to be someone who is into the monarchy to mm. feel something right. today. Yeah. And I think that's the case for a lot of people here. You know, the, the monarchy has always been a very divisive topic for a lot of people in this country, and I'm sure the case abroad, we we know that to be the case. But when it came to the Queen, there was something different. You know, an interesting fact I learned about recently was the popularity of the Queen in, here in Scotland um, versus in England, where, you know, in England, the monarchy is revered, is, is very well loved, and it's the case to some extent in Scotland. But the difference is that the monarchy is less popular in Scotland, but the Queen 
the queen was Herself. popular. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She and was I, popular. And I kind of wondered that for some of the things that we will hear that they'll discuss that were the queen's favorite things, um, being out on the balcony, addressing the being out in the rain. Uh, I, I thought I heard she was a big fan of, of that kind of weather and really enjoyed what the feel and what probably in, in England itself and Scotland, just that countryside and that feel. Is there anything that comes to your mind that you know and people associate with with Queen Elizabeth II? I think her independence. You know, she has always been someone who was an independent woman. She had clearly given her life to something which Mm. was bigger than her, and she knew that. But at the same time, she was an independent woman. She could do things for herself, you know, most notably through the war. She would fix Mm. her own Jeep when it broke down. Um, You know, and and I remember a friend of mine who uh, got the chance to spend time with her uh, he's a, a minister for Glasgow Cathedral here in Scotland, and um, he spent a lot of time with her at Balmoral, actually, and yeah. spent private time with her and said on one occasion that she made him a sandwich wow. um, after driving <laughs> him back to the, the castle. And they would go into this kind of back entrance where, you know, Prince Philip at the time was, you know, sitting reading his paper. I mean, he just was completely blown away by the the, the normalcy of it, yet, mm. you know, what he was standing and who he was standing amongst. So it was just an incredible, you know, experience to find someone who was so independent and so well loved, and you know, someone who would go out into the the local area in Balmoral, and you know, in the dialect in Aberdeenshire where uh, Balmoral is, is is situated, the the local dialect is or the local language is Doric. That's what they call it, and it's it's quite a different language to Scots, and for that reason, you know. Not a lot of people speak it, but, you know, someone was seen talking to the Queen who would just go along to a Sunday Mass or a Sunday service and just sit in the crowd with everyone else. I mean, security clearly were around, but, you know, frankly, no one was bothering it. She, she was known to be there. Yeah. And they, she would talk to people in that, in that language. You know, she, mm-hmm. she really resonated with people. And, and despite the fact she was the Queen and she was this world figure, she was so well loved by people who just met her and she she loved talking to people she loved spending time with people and she was very very normal despite the trappings of of who and what she was perhaps maybe she was so entrenched in it that she never yeah. realized how big a role it was even at childhood they didn't want her the the kids being her, her being um, influenced so much that they couldn't enjoy being young. Sorry, Ron. But she did take that time, right? She yeah. took the time to make that a huge part of her role, to engage with people on that level and step into their communities, their, uh, you know, their places and, and put her presence in there. But um, I want to mention too, as you said, uh, Stephen, that, you know, she, she got through the war, she got 70 years, like generations of people we're talking about, right? Not just who we know her as today, but for how long she's been there, people and their kids and their kids' kids, we all know the Queen. And you know, the, the one uh, amazing fact that, that came out during all of the conversations and the lead up to this news was that you know she met prime ministers from Winston Churchill, who was born in yep. the late 1800s up to the present day um, Prime Minister Liz Truss, who has just taken office only two days ago. Mm-hmm. And um, you know we're talking about 101, roughly 101 years of difference between birth dates. Yes. Um, when you think about that, the, the amount of of people and uh, you know and involvement and and love that she's got from around the world, and I. Yeah. I think in a world that, frankly, is very divided at the moment, and maybe this is just hopeful or wishful thinking, but I kind of hope people take stock now 
I think we all look at this woman as not a queen, but as a mother, as a grandmother. Right. And we can all resonate with that. So whether you're for the monarchy or not, we can, we can resonate with this and we, can, we all feel something as a what result a, of this news today. What a personality. First making her first radio address at the age of 14. And I think, Stephen, you summed it up with that lady, that person who has just definitely wanted to be that down-to-earth person and so curious of everyone else, everyone she came in contact with, and everybody that much better. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, guys. Stephen Scott, one of the hosts of Double Tap, joining us once again. Queen Elizabeth II passes away today at age 96. We'll continue with more on Kelly and Company after this break. Thursday edition of Kelly and Company, Ramya Muth and Kelly McDonald. We are the hosts of the program. Folks, if you'd like to reach out, if you've got a message for us, something you'd like to say, if we can, we'll play your message on air. Just give us permission to do so and mention that it's for Kelly and Company. And you can do that, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-45. You can email feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. Maybe you've got a question about AMI-TV. AMI Tele or AMI Audio, best way to do it. And on Twitter, she's at All Rams with a Z. I'm at AMI Kelly Mack. And of course, you can follow along with what's happening on the programs here on AMI Audio. Go to at AMI Audio. That's that handle, at AMI Audio, to keep up with what's going on right here. As mentioned at the top, I'm Kelly McDonald at the Home Studio in London, Ontario, Ramya Muthan, at uh, Main Campus in Toronto at Accessible Media Inc. We're going to get into some audio entertainment highlights, this time from Big Finish. Let's bring on Michael Fair. Hi, I'm Mike Fair. iPhones, iPods, and iPads are everywhere, and they're doing great things for the blind. We explore all that, plus audio entertainment, dramas, podcasts, internet radio, and games. We share it all on Kelly and Company. Mike, in each of us, there's good and evil. There are a lot of different versions of this quote. I like it. Uh, the story of Jekyll and Hyde was written over 150 years ago and has been adapted countless times. And this week, you're telling us about the Big Finish adaptation, which was just released at the end of August. How long have you been waiting, Mike, for this classic to come out? This has taken a while. It was first proposed, uh, like we first got wind of it, I think in 2016. Uh, he adapted it for a play. Uh, as the first thing, uh, and then, then from that play is where the audio version came from. So it's it, it just kept being pushed back and back, uh, recording it, uh, you know, and and uh, it, it fell further and further through the schedule until finally uh, it was made earlier this year, and uh, quite appropriately during the pandemic, uh, we had uh, because of course uh, when uh, apparently when uh, Jekyll and Hyde was written. written uh, it was written in six days, uh, apparently, and in uh, apparently at the time there was a plague that uh, Robert Louis Stevenson was was grappling with. So, <laughs> yeah, interesting that. Uh, but I've been waiting a long time for this. I pre-ordered it as soon as I heard about it, and uh, then kind of began to wonder, you know, as the years went by, whether I'd ever see it. And now, finally, twenty twenty two, it's here. <laughs> I'm anxious about, as we have this conversation with you, uh, to get into some of the setting. One of the things I always loved about the story 
is you get that feel of London as a city and so many interesting things from that era. What got, what for you built up your expectations for this title? Well, there was a number of things. There was, of course, Treasure Island, uh, the Robert Lewis Stevenson story that was right. just splendidly adapted by Big Finish. You couldn't have done it better. Uh, they, they just did such perfection with that. And I, I knew, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, the basic story. I uh, had read it a long time ago, uh, back in, I guess, in sort of the end of high school, beginning of university. And I kind of, my memories of the uh, this story were vague enough that I, I didn't realize how short it was. Um, I'd forgotten about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I really uh, thought we were in for a really interesting uh, story. Anything by Robert Louis Stevenson, you got a solid writer, you got Big Finish as one of the most solid audio drama crews. So I figured we were in for a real treat regardless, and I wasn't wrong in that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, we do have the trailer, but before we get to uh, the Big Finish trailer on Jekyll and Hyde, what's the story, the classic story about? So basically the story is that uh, Jekyll, uh, Dr. Henry Jekyll, is a chemist, and he is experimenting. He's a, a good man, known for his good works, very charitable and moral, and he thought, of trying to experiment to separate the evil from the good impulses so that the the great the good which would be the greater would be unrestrained by the selfish the destructive the, the base and and that would just dwarf anything the evil evil part of his legacy would do and uh, unfortunately uh, the split didn't quite work as intended and what happens then of course is uh, Gabriel Utterson is a lawyer he basically uh, is gets involved in this case uh, as uh, Mr. Hyde, the evil part of Dr. Jekyll, commits these horrible acts, and uh, it uh, it sort of spirals. It's a big mystery. They're trying to figure out why the police can't find this evil man that that is uh, disturbing London and and creating uh, committing horrible tragedies. Uh, the, the story starts with the murder of a politician and the trampling of a, a young girl by this man yeah. and uh, continues from that. And it's uh, sort of a, a police procedural. It's amazing. It really is. It's an f- interesting story. And you say police procedural. Is this the angle that Big Finish has taken with this? Basically, yeah. They've, they've taken a minor uh, character uh, to try and uh, get, make it into a more a play, a more a mystery play. And they've uh, they've done uh, a kind of a a thing where it's it's a movie. You hear things unfold. It's not narrated as such. So you're hearing the movie like it's a movie that without pictures almost. So you're hearing stuff happen mm-hmm. and uh, traveling through the environs and meeting the characters as they do. And uh, they basically turn it into a morality tale and a mystery. So you're getting. Inspector Newcomen, who is this police officer in charge of investigating, trying to track down this Mr. Hyde. And he's dealing with Gabriel Utterson, this lawyer who's learning more and more about J- uh, Jekyll and Hyde and the association of the two and what's going on. And uh, he's actually a client of Dr. Uh, Jekyll and a client of, of the politician who was murdered. So, of course, uh, that's that kind of ropes him into these things. And mm-hmm. it's yeah. all about his his moral journey through this horrific experience. Okay, well, let's take a listen to the trailer and come back with some conversation. Oh. Oh. Satisfied. Ah! Ah! 
Oh, he's commonplace enough to look at, but on the short side, but when you do look at him, you wish you had never done it. You wish you could forget. But I can never forget. I'll never forget that face. Never forget what you've done. <laughs> do not see, sir. They mean to take your life. You are a liar, sir. I beg your pardon. And I did not give it. By all lights, and at all hours of solitude and concourse, I was to be found. There. Waiting. If he be Mr. Hyde, I thought, I shall be Mr. Seek. <laughs> like a blind fool, I welcomed it into my heart. My home. And it very nearly destroyed me. <laughs> Thank the Lord, I am rid of it. Big finish, for the love of stories. The moment I choose, I can be rid of Mr. Hyde. Mm. Wow. One of those stories, too, that you can't, Mike, just infer the violence. There's got to be... Well, you've got to have those scenes as he, oh, it's he there. chokes people, hits them with that cane that he brandishes. Oh, yes. How long is this story? <laughs> it's two acts. The first one is about 59 uh, minutes, and the second one is, or the first one is 55, the second act is 49, giving about, about 100 minutes of story. And then you have uh, uh, basically about 36 minutes of interviews and bonus material after, making for a solid two and a quarter nice. hours, two and a half hours. Mm. So. Yeah, nice little feature-length uh, movie, essentially, uh, done in audio. So pretty well done and, and quite well-paced. Several significant characters, too, as we heard in the, the trailer and you teeing up this um, whole thing. How was the acting in the drama? Oh, it was brilliantly done. They got a super cast. John uh, Heffernan is uh, familiar to Doctor Who fans and, and Big Finish uh, fans. He's been in a lot of different things. He plays Jekyll and Hyde. So you heard him during the trailer there. Uh, Barnaby Kay is uh, the lawyer, Gabriel Utterson, and you heard him as well. Uh, he really gives you that sense of this moral weight of uh, increasing in the dread of this this game, uh, the Mr. Hyde uh, as he goes through. Uh, Clara Corbett plays all four, uh, all the female roles. I think there are four main ones, and then there might even be more little ones that she does. And she makes everyone sound different. That's just, it just blew me away. <laughs> and uh, Robert Portal was Inspector Nukem. I always love that Victorian moral police constable. Now, listen here, you know, you know and all this, this kind of, he just did that perfect, you know, gave you that sense of the moral weight, you know, and the, everything. He did a really good job of that. So, By the uh, weight oh. of the law, right? Um, yes. <laughs> Mike, I, I said earlier, the setting, the feel, how does sound really lend itself to that with this production? He, he basically the music is produced by uh, uh, Nicholas Briggs composed it himself and, and he he actually adapted this the did the adaptation from the play to the audio drama so it, music really works well it gives it kind of a surreal feel uh, so you, you you really have this sense of, of of this is out of the ordinary this is dreadful uh, as it goes through. And you have the sound effects just envelop you, all the environments to surround you, like you're walking through with the characters or in the rooms with them. 
And I found that really well done, as, as is typical with Big Finish, really. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was quite a, a nice uh, mix of that. And, and the, the music really helped carry the mood. Well, yeah, exactly. And the mood is drama. Like, there's just so much drama and, you know, potentially, like Kelly was saying, suspense um, and violence. It all comes yes. through mm-hmm. uh, very well with the, the sound, music and acting. Um, how about the audience? Adult? Uh, I would, it's it's basically, I would say for adult, yes. Uh, maybe teenagers, certainly. I wouldn't, I would imagine myself a bit scared as a kid hearing something like this. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, but it's very adult in, in that sense. Nothing How old really were you the first time you ever heard the story or read it? Yeah, um, that was, that was back, in, I, I was about 16, I guess, when I would have read it in that range. Good heavens, and, what was wrong with my family? I think I first heard it at 9 or 10. Wow. <laughs> well, then um, it, it goes, it's a bit more graphic with the sound, right? I mean, you get the darker sense of stuff, um, you know, and, and there is, nothing's over the top really, but there is the violence. There's no cursing that I could hear no, anywhere in no. it. But yeah, there is, there are a couple of violent acts for sure. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard a version where there's any cursing. Uh, did anything disappoint you about this production as you were so anxious to hear it? Well, of course, yeah, the buildup was intense. Uh, there's probably no way it could exactly meet it. I thought it would be longer. I wasn't expecting something quite as short as, as this was. And uh, some of the acting I thought initially was kind of over the top. Uh, the other thing was with the sound, I missed some of the dialogue coming through my speakers uh, I have hearing loss, so that you know mm. it could be partially that. But Sarah also had a, a bit of a problem catching all of the words. I had to hear it again with my AirPods to really catch, made sure I, I got all the uh, the, the words. Uh, but the, the soundscaping was amazing. So I mean, we know with Big Finish, you are putting down some cash. So was it worth the price? I would say yes. You know, it's about 12 something uh, for the download. And I would say absolutely. You pay more for a movie that might turn out worse. So, you know, in that sense, it's it's quite good <laughs> I entertainment. Love that comparison. Me too. Yeah. And it's, it's very apropos. Yeah, it's a good evening's listen. You know, it's, it's not too long. It, it will fill, uh, you know, eight to 10 very nicely, kind of 1030 ish. And uh, you'd be fine. You know, do you uh delve into a lot of the Jekyll and Hyde um, iterations that are out there? Or, you know, you, you really were looking forward to the big finish? I was really looking forward to the big finish one. I haven't heard a lot of other ones. Uh, I heard it was interesting. One of the things mentioned in the bonus material was this movie called Page Master, uh, which had Leonard Nimoy in it as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mm. very briefly. It was there was a small part of the movie in this land where books were alive and stuff. And I do remember that as a, as a kid hearing that thinking, wow, you know, <laughs> it was, was kind of neat. So uh, it was interesting that we'd, we'd run into the same kind of uh, adaptation of it. Uh, but that bonus material is really nice, too. I'd recommend everyone listen to that. Right. There's, there's some neat insights in that. Okay, Michael. I mean, I don't know if we're going to talk iPhones and Mac stuff next week, but there's a ton oh, I think going so. on. Okay. I, think so. I predicted yeah. correctly. Was willing to put my money on it. Thanks, Mike. We'll talk to you later. Already. A pleasure. We'll see you next time. Mike Fair joins us on Thursdays. Uh, today featuring audio entertainment with Big Finish Audio. Next week, we get into tech. Coming up after the break, David Best is a counselor who has plenty of experience working with the blind and partially sighted community. Fern Lullum shares some of his thoughts on coping with disability next.
You know, it's interesting because as a kid, I really loved the environment of cities, you know, to hear about them, just to imagine what it'd be like going from east end of town to downtown or, or whatever. And of course, the one we had the most exposure here to know about would be either be London, England or, or New York City. Um, that stuff, when you, you talk of show like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, as Mike Fair was speaking to us in the last segment on Rum, th- that stuff just fascinates me. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of cool, too, because there's so many versions, influences uh, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah. And then it's, you know, it's still going, right? Oh, Considering sure. how classic it is, how old it is. But yeah. it's kind of everywhere. There's all kinds of, uh, you can tell when you're watching certain TV or podcasts or just storylines of things where they're pulled from. And uh, it's pretty fascinating to know how big it is. For me, it's the snapshot of life then because it was written about That's true too. at the time as a current. So that was just life then. And yeah. we're hearing about it 150 years later. Oh, wow. But also oh, the yeah. contemporary versions of this, yes. of this kind of tale um, is pretty awesome too. Yeah. Really cool stuff. Welcome back, folks, wherever you are listening in around the world uh, to Kelly and Company. We appreciate you being with us. And speaking of around the world, let's bring in now as we're joined by our friend from the UK, Fern Lullum. What's on your mind? I'm Fern Lullum from the UK, and whether serious, silly, or somewhere in between, I've got you covered. Let's face it, the most effective therapy is a chat with your bestie. Fern, let's get to the serious right off the top here and, and give you the floor for a moment. Um, of course, over here, we're reeling from the death of Queen Elizabeth II and thought maybe you might want a few moments to say some words. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're all just very sorry to hear about the passing today. We kind of heard at lunchtime that she, she you know, she was ill. It wasn't looking good. Um, and, and obviously, most people have just never known a, a time with a different monarch, um, mm. you know, most people living yeah. now because because she's been here for so long. And I think it, it probably will be different in the future because Charles is very different. You know, he is more outspoken. And I think most people really did like the Queen and, and the way that she was. So it'll be interesting to see how things change and how things progress. But, you know, she was 96 years old. That's yeah. pretty good. That's pretty amazing. And uh, as we were talking with Stephen Scott earlier, you know, with the brand new prime minister, too, it feels like a lot is shifting um, Mm. for you guys in the UK. So as you said, we kind of keep posted to see how this change will come about. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be like I say, it'll be interesting to see what happens and and what it means for for us in the UK. Mm -hmm. Well, definitely. And of course, our thoughts out to everybody um, all impacted, of course, many people around the world. Today, we're talking, Fern, with you about the psychological impact that blindness can have. Um, Could you please like to kind of guide us where we're going? Yeah, well, I think this is a really important topic and one of my favorites. I mean, a lot has rightly been said and and gets said a lot about the physical challenges that we face as blind people, all of the practicalities that we go through every day. But I do think it's just as important, sometimes even more important, to look at the emotional side of things. And honestly, I don't think that we do enough of that. Well, Fern, we know from things you've said on the program before that it's something you have a particular interest in. Yeah, I absolutely do. And recently I was lucky enough to speak to someone with lots of experience of supporting blind people with the emotional issues that they face on a daily basis. Someone who deals with it on a professional basis? 
Yes, indeed it was, Ramya. I spoke to David Best. David is visually impaired himself, and he has many years of providing a counselling service for blind people under his belt on behalf of a UK charity. So I was absolutely thrilled to be able to chat with somebody who shares my interest in the psychology that goes along with blindness and has just so much knowledge about all of the, the things that go into that. Wow, that's amazing. I can imagine this was an opportunity that you didn't want to miss. So it certainly can you tell us was not. <laughs> a little bit about what you discussed with David. Yes. So I talked about confidence. Um, that was the kind of the big topic. And naturally enough, we started with confidence as a child, because we all know, going back to Freud, it all starts when you're a child. And um and you know, how most of us have moments where we come to realize that we just can't do everything that others can or we can't do it in the same way that others can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really defining time uh, for us. It is. And I think that what David says about it really did resonate with me because he spoke about the dilemma of whether to reveal to the world that you have a visual impairment or not. Well, and and so many blind people agonize over that. So what did Mm -hmm. David say about it? Well, he made the point that young people can worry a lot about how others see them and the judgments that they might make. They can make the decision to use a a cane or a guide dog really, you know, it makes it really hard for them because like, just like me, I went through this myself. Everyone knows then that you're visually impaired. You know, you might as well wear a t-shirt saying I am blind. Um, (laughs) So, you know, as I've said before, my guide dog, Nancy, as you know, I always say she's wonderful, but she just can't keep a secret. You see, Nancy, (laughs) you know, straight away. Yes, we do. But she's too cute. So what's the advice (laughs) around this then? Well, David said that one of the things to remember is that people will always look at other people, whoever they are, whether disabled or not. um, And, you know, it's just a natural thing when we're out and about. That's what happens. But after a second or two, really, they've forgotten. They've moved on with their lives. And I think what they do remember, though, is if you walk into a lamppost or some other (laughs) obstacle because you don't have a mobility aid because you were too embarrassed to get one. (laughs) It's kind of that's a pretty powerful argument. That's for sure. But it can still take a lot of courage for some people to make their disability, uh, you know, obvious. It's kind of hard to, to, to decide to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a great irony, isn't it, that we, we want to hide it so much. But then when we do something embarrassing and people don't know why, we just think, oh, God, now I don't have a you know, I don't have an explanation. Where's my explanation? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so David acknowledged that. And it's something that he struggles with himself. And I know from my own experience of deciding to get Nancy, because I agonized over whether to get Nancy. Mm-hmm. It's really not easy. Um, and however, I, I have found that it is po- possible to get the reaction from others into perspective. You know, you don't need to worry about it quite so much. Um, And to see that there are positive aspects in being open about your disability, like having an explanation about why you just walked into a lamppost. And there's nothing wrong with taking your time over that and just being, you know, making sure that you feel comfortable with it. Yeah. And that's even if you're deciding between using a a cane or a guide dog, you know, Mm. it's a big journey, the decision-making part of it. And one of the things that we hear about is some people might try to overcompensate for their lack of vision in things mm-hmm. that they do so that they feel more valued by others. Did you discuss that aspect of it? Oh, yes. That is definitely, again, something that I have done in the past. Sure. And what David said about that really did resonate with me, especially as 
I'm kind of a self-professed people pleaser. Okay. <laughs> Say a little more about that. Well, you might not notice it, you two, because I, you know, I sort of give the lip on this show, but um, <laughs> I, I am a self-impressed people pleaser, believe it or not. And uh, uh, although you might not have noticed from my segments as well, I am a bit of a perfectionist. Sometimes they're all over the place here, but in, in general, in life, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And I think that that is an ov- overcompensation for my blindness. So as David said, this can work against you because setting impossibly high standards is likely to end in disappointment because you can never reach them and a complete knock to your confidence. It's an interesting perspective because so many of us can attest to this, right? We keep setting the bar higher and higher and higher Mm -hmm. so that people don't think that our bars are so low because we have disabilities. But Mm -hmm. isn't that, like from what you're saying, isn't that saying blind people can't compete in the world? Mm. No. Could it be taken Uh, away? Well, I suppose it could be, but I think it's important to make it clear that that it isn't saying that, because I think the downside of always aiming for perfection, um, you know, that applies to everyone, whether you've got a disability or not. And no one's perfect. Funnily enough, and and this might come a shock to people, but no one is perfect. Um, And I know that quite often it comes across that I am, but no, (laughs) nobody is perfect. Being blind blind certainly shouldn't stop you from being ambitious. Absolutely. Don't, you know, don't let that stop you. But like anyone else, just take care not to let unrealistic expectations lead you down a path which damages your confidence. Because again, it's ironic, isn't it? Yeah, Mm. you really get into trouble sometimes having those unrealistic or making those demands. And for the reasons that sometimes we conjure up, I want people to see me as a capable person instead (laughs) of that being happy, being realistic and saying, yeah, I am capable. It's sort of like that feeling as you were talking earlier that that people are watching you as if they're waiting mm-hmm. for you to make a mistake or something when we forget how many people are wow oh look at the, I I couldn't do that or ah that person's totally fine I don't need to stick my mm. nose in um but let's stay with confidence because it's often something that we really often need if asking for a reasonable adjustment or if we uh, you know if we feel a refu- experience um an access refusal Yes, yes. Talking of guide dogs, access refusals are something that I am Mm. no stranger to. So that's another really important reason why we should talk more about the emotional side of visual impairment, because that is something that we struggle with. Yeah. And what David um, had to say about this one? Well, one of his observations is that we do have a tendency to be less assertive than we need to be at times, at least some of us do. And we can be inclined to ask for permission to have things rather than saying, this is what I need and being really clear about that. Very interesting. Wow. So true. So rather than deciding to use a cane or have a guide dog, it's about really owning the fact that you have a visual impairment and taking control. This is really tremendous. Yeah, 100%. David says that some people worry that asking for help means giving away their independence. Right. But actually, the opposite is true because in that way, you're taking control of the mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. Well, right. and people get that, I'm bringing negative attention to myself. Why yeah. can't people just not just leave me alone or I don't mm. want people to notice me? And I guess if you're out moving around... Maybe you can get away with it, depending on on your realistic, uh, what you're able to do. But sometimes some of us can put ourselves either in physical harm or people, the first thing they think of is, what's wrong with that person? They've been drinking too much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But yeah, but what you said about, you know, 
having that control is confidence, is showcasing that you're able to mm-hmm. ask for help. That's a huge part of it. Can you give us an example of that? Because this is something that I had to really come to terms with as well. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. And so, 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 okay, let's take the example. You're in a shop and you want to find something. So you've got two choices, basically. You can spend ages trying to figure out where it is and you you can't find it and it's really embarrassing and then eventually you feel all sorry for yourself and you think, oh God, I'm going to have to go and ask. It's no good. And and by that point, you're just feeling terrible, right? Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know... Often, what all you achieve by that is just frustration and annoyance, and like I say, feeling terrible about yourself. Or you can say, No, I'm just going to go in this shop. I'm not even going to try and look. I'm going to go up to the counter and I'm going to ask. And there's nothing wrong in asking mm-hmm. for help. And as soon as you go into that shop and you ask, again, it's taking control, it's empowering yourself. And then you're not going to leave thinking, Oh, I tried my best, but I couldn't do it. You know, you're going to go in there <laughs> saying, no, I went in, yeah. I asked, and Hey, presto, it was fine. Yeah. You don't want to leave empty handed, nor do you want that feeling of the burning, the red ears as you're embarrassed, yes. thinking everyone in the store knows you don't know where you're going. I see you over there hiding behind the <laughs> soda of me. Um, so is that what David means, taking control in this situation? Yeah. So as he says, when we ask for help, it's all part of being independent and everyone needs help at some point, whoever you are. And asking for it builds up your confidence and your self-esteem. So the general theme, got to let you go in a sec, but the general theme of this is being open and honest with both the world and yourself about who you are and what your abilities are is a good recipe for confidence and self-esteem. Exactly. And it's something we all share, disabled or not. You betcha. Fern, thanks a lot. Great topic. Thank you, David Best, as well uh, for the wonderful insight. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Have a great show, guys. Thank you. Fern Lullum joins us every other week for UK Disability Highlights. Up next, community reporter Kim Hovey took part in a research study aiming to better understand the experiences of people with low or no vision navigating the built environment. She gives us some highlights after this. Thanks for being with us. Welcome back to Kelly and Company. In Canada, you can listen into the our show right from your own television. Compton subscribers, we're on channel 88. And Rogers Atlantic, look for us on channel on 196. Visit ami.ca slash audio for a list of channel locations in your area. Kelly McDonald here with Ramya Muthan. And on Thursdays, we get these rare community report check-ins. Um, and this is, of course, because we missed our Monday with Labor Day. And so Kim Hovey's here from Dawson City, Yukon, to give us a bit of a um, an update on how things are going, where she is. Kim, how's it going? Never a dull moment in Yukon, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we count on it. Kind of, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, we have two things we want to get to today. Um, Sorry, were you going to tell us about the first thing or something else you wanted to? Well, I just wanted to start off by saying that I am so appreciative of today's technology to truly enjoy the beauty of the Yukon. Oh, yeah? Yes. Okay. The the camera phones and everything just, Mm. it's just. 
That's living so this every day. I'm so thankful to be able to actually see what I want to see. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a really good point. And, and not just in a disability lens, but just being able to share, right? Share things with people um, all over the place and do it in such quick time and such clear quality is really, really amazing. Kim, you took part Very in... Very thankful. Mm-hmm. You took part in a research study uh, to understand the experiences of people who have low vision or who are blind as they navigate the built environment. So can you give us some context on this and your learnings? Well, I have just been asked to join this research study, so I actually haven't. I'm just in the process of signing the consent forms and getting all of the legalese in place. And so it's been it's been very interesting to I've never been part of this type of a of a program so it's very interesting to be a part of this. Amazing. And who like how did you get hooked up with this? What's the uh, context behind that? Yes. So one of the devices that I tried was eSight. It's a visual device and uh, what an impact that has on so many low vision people. And so this, um, I was connected through eSight because uh, I told them I'd be willing to help out in any way. So there's a, um, there's a department in Northern Illinois, actually in the university, um, special and early education department is actually uh, the department is, that is holding this. And I've looked in to see, because uh, the research study is actually a continuation of a previous study where they were working with young adults with visual impairments to get their driver's education. And that really intrigued me because Having driven all my life until 2018, um, it's had a huge impact. And like I said about technology being so incredible, I'm eagerly awaiting the day where they say and feel confident that the technology can support people. And even with the vehicles now becoming self driven and stuff, I can see how um, there's going to be more, a lot more opportunities for visually impaired, I think. And this is definitely one way to help that process by doing these research studies. So Mm -hmm. I'm very happy to help out with that. It helps them expand. It helps the services expand to continue to explore um, how they can utilize this technology. Like eSight, when it first came out, we were just really talking about reading and uh, better lighting and high contrast, right? It was like having the CCTV experience, but right mm-hmm. like on your face um, and as a wearable. <laughs> that's, that's a better way to say it. So, yes. right. Yes. But the the thing is, as you continue, as more people use it, as people use it consistently and keep going, like you said, you can continue to develop 
and grow this technology into other realms of life and into other ways that things can be accessible. Um, and honestly, first of all, the experience is personal for everybody, right? Like what you might use eSight for might be a bit different from how I might use eSight. Uh, and people have all kinds of the, – the spectrum of um, vision impairment is is ginormous, already so broad yeah Yeah, it's so Mm -hmm. broad so i I think that you're right this is great opportunity to just keep talking to people just keep understanding how the technology can move forward yeah yes and they can they can sit there and surmise all they want Mm -hmm. it's truly the people and their experiences where they can learn and grow from so it's it's really good and really important for, I think, for people to step up, especially if you want a continuation with technology. If it's, I mean, I'm going to have two 45-minute video conferences. Like, how hard is that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it can have great impact. So, yes, it can. Um, yeah. So it's I'm really happy to do whatever I can. And, and- and it's very personal uh, in what you need for, as Rum said, the perspective that, you know, Kim, that you were speaking that for you, for me, for whomever it might be, is everyone has that individual uh, assessment they make for themselves. And also things that somebody might say, oh, I use a site for this. I, uh, you, gee, I, I never yeah. thought of that. Um, let's talk about COVID mm-hmm. up there in the north. Uh, school <laughs> has started and... What's it like with the, with the remote, with the situation there? Can we get a little bit of a snapshot? Certainly. So my boys have started school, and mm-hmm. uh, with the school year starting, they are very short-staffed. Oh, boy. So that results in the support staff being short. And being so remote, it's not as if we have the population to cover that. And in this stage, like my, so my boys are in grade 10, and they've, <laughs> I, I hate to say it, but they've come home my, and said, it's pretty bad when we have to te- teach the teachers what to teach us. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> So and so, you know, and that's because say, it's people well, filling in. If there's even anyone there, exactly right. They just and they've they've announced this, and there's actually uh, going to be a meeting tonight that I'm going to go to an open an open house to talk about um, how things are going to progress through the school year. It's a great big deal to have them back in class, and that's wonderful. Um, but you know, for just because we don't have the population to support the urgency for that, for teachers and support mm-hmm. staff is mm-hmm. is very challenging. And kids at that age, I mean, my boys are talking about college now, obviously, and um, what they need to get to where they want to go. Yeah. And they're just worried that it's not gonna and it's not anybody's fault uh, <laughs> I want to say uh, it's so I'm going to just continue on saying it's a result of COVID and there's 
there's wonderful reasons to be remote, but there's also very harsh reasons yeah. to be remote. There's, there's and, consequences. And you've had this virus setting people back. You have the threat of come the cold, the winter, the inside season. What's gonna? What's that going to bring? How 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 much help can we get? And you talk not of uh, teachers not being available, but what is the busing like as well for people? That's got to play into it. Totally, and so many things that are so crucial, and we don't have alternatives up here the way we do, the, the way they do down south. So, um, like. We have one road to get from Dawson to Whitehorse, and mm. if there's any uh. issues, forest fire or whatever, washout, um, flooding, it's like that's the major link, and there's no other way other than by air, so or water, I should say too. Yeah. Um, but it's just a huge hindrance, and it can be very scary at times. Um, just there's not the population of workers to even fix the problem, let alone, um, you know, deal with it. Kim, will somebody probably get up there tonight and say, why didn't we over the last year, year and a half, count on this happening, count on this problem, and how come more teachers haven't been alerted to, hey, you want some work, it may not be full-time, but to be on that casual. And I understand people can't just pick up and move, but do you think that'll come up tonight? Oh, absolutely. And they have advertising out, and they just cannot get people up here. A big issue is housing. I know 100% that um, housing is such an issue. And... So if if the employer cannot provide housing, um, then people can't come all the way up north here and live or work. Um, so that in itself is probably one of the biggest um, well, roadblocks to getting the people up here. I mean, there's life up in Yukon in itself. <laughs> you got to love it because... Uh, Otherwise, you won't make it. So, but to have um, the ability to adjust and change and grow, it's it's very challenging up here. They say hardy people come out of the Yukon. Mm-hmm. I can see. I can see why. Exactly, Kim. Thank you for your time and good luck with everything. We'll chat with you in October. Well, wonderful. Thank you. Kim Javi is our community reporter in Dawson City, Yukon, joining us once a month with her community report. Okay, folks, we're going to talk about gaming, accessible gaming next hour and running a game night. We have Becky Zarr joining us on this week's roundtable and Margaret Weldon pinch hitting for Bill Shackleton with the buzz in about two minutes to begin hour two. Thanks for spending some of your day with us, ladies and gentlemen. We're here from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern with the live edition of Kelly and Company. And at 10 p.m., the first repeat of the show. 6 a.m., the second repeat of the show right here on AMI-audio. So whenever you have a few moments and want to share some of the show, 
with us, please do. We'd appreciate it. Otherwise, check out the Callie and Company podcast available using your favorite podcatcher. Ramya Muthan, she's over there at main campus in Toronto. Kelly McDonald here uh, uh, at my home studio here in London, Ontario. Well, look who else is home and joining us on the program today for the segment called The Buzz. No, no, folks, not the shackle. Well, he's probably at home, but he's not probably resting, enjoying something, eating. But he's not here with us today because he's on vacation. So Margaret Weldon, back in here again. Man, that's all you seem to be getting the, the kick at the cat lately is just filling in uh, for people away on, on vacation. I know. I don't know what I'm going to do with my time next week. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, you'll, I might go into a Kelly and Company withdrawal or something. Well, we have your segment at least next week, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you'll be on the I'm show on at least. Week. At least you totally won't be like, hey, I've got nothing to do. I, I can actually go on vacation. <laughs> Mags, where are we starting <laughs> well, with you? Okay, um, so the first thing we're going to talk about today is Mega Star, uh, or Mega Basketball Star, rather, Steph Curry, mm-hmm. has written a book for children. And he says this project has uh, been in the works for a long time. He's very excited about it. He said the book doesn't uh, make fun of people who are smaller, but what it does focus on is people who dream big or people who, you know, work towards their dreams. And he's hoping that this book will help them because after all, children are, will be our, our next future game changers. Wow, this is really amazing. And and for people who don't know, Steph Curry spent a lot of time in Canada. His dad, Dell, um, played for the Raptors. And when Steph was very young, uh, he spent a lot of time working out on the court in Toronto, going to school in Toronto, whether he remembers much of that or not. But I think people here in Canada who are, are basketball fans uh, take a bit of solace in that and, and take a bit of pride as well when we speak of Steph Curry. So I really, when I heard about this, Mags, really loved it. I love the idea of it, especially everybody, young particularly, kids who the book's targeting, feeling big with their ideas, with who they are, their own personality, to feel good about yourself. Exactly. And I don't know about you, Kelly, but it seems to me this year, there seems to be a lot of um, different sports figures coming out and trying to encourage children to uh, live up to their dreams in one way, shape or form. Or is is that just me? I think we're getting some of that because people who the celebrities really must have a challenge, Margaret, because if you're involved in charities... You don't want people hearing about it unless it's to help the charity. You want to stay in the background because you don't want people feeling the reason we're hearing about this charity this some person's involved with is to get them some you know free PR out there. But when you talk about, well, I wrote a book or I want to write or I want to tell the story of and something that seems, yeah, okay, you're going to sell the book. You'll make your, your money off it. But you have a message for people. I think that takes on a whole different angle where people feel the person's being a lot less self-serving. You know, I think it's too easy for us to taint whatever good they do with a charity. Oh, well, they're just doing it to to kind of make people feel good about them and talk about them. Whereas if you're doing a book or something, time goes into that. And a lot of people picking that book up have no interest, no interest even information as to maybe your wow celebrity basketball guy i'll watch him now on tv from gold watching golden state games all the time so i i love when we hear about this and i think you're right um what else do you have for us okay 
Inflation is in, is affecting the costs of weddings. Um, it's actually bringing back the Zoom weddings, you know, the weddings that where people can attend, I guess, over Zoom and uh, or, or what they call micro weddings because they're uh, reducing the number of guests. And a lot of these costs are actually coming down to um, a, a lot of these costs are actually coming down to things like supplies um, you know, inflation of uh, other products, um, even the war in Ukraine apparently is affecting all these things. And I'll give you a prime example. Uh, the Knot, which is a survey uh, that is conducted, uh, you know, about weddings every year, has found that in 2021, the average number of guests that were invited to a wedding was about 150 and the cost was $34,000. Okay. In 2019, we had um, 200 and the cost was um, $33,900. Um, wow. And yeah, that's right. And, and you know, and, and it's, it's really kind of um, putting a strain on a lot of guests because they've had to have their weddings canceled several times due to the pandemic. Um, and they think that they've got enough cash saved. And then it turns out that no, their price is almost double, and it yeah. it, it, it hits them really hard. Um, some of the methods that are some of the uh, uh, measures that uh, couples are now taking into account and doing are uh, which now one really severe one is one lady talked about this in the article was that uh, she and her partner had invited approximately two hundred guests, um, and meanwhile, as well as the wedding plans going on, they had purchased a new home. And it came down to where they just could not find ways to stretch the wedding budget and they had to uninvite some of the guests. So in other words, they, they had to, you know, say, okay, we know that you got an invitation, but because of our financial situation, we're going to have to uninvite you. And uh, she said it was a very tough conversation to have. Um, she and her partner uh, spent quite a bit of time drafting a script um, as, as to what they were going to say to people, whether it would be over the phone of people who said well we're going to go regardless of whether we're uninvited or not and mm. uh, she said that her uh, that, wow. that her partner can considered doing monitoring you know having some form of security in place to prevent wedding crashers more money more money in a situation where you don't you know you feel bad enough and i mean most weddings anyway margaret people have to draw the line they said because their budget only stretches so far and it costs and again like anything else you could say okay this wedding should cost me x number of dollars we know as things come in and people you oh shoot i forgot about this person that person to invite uh, costs are going to go up so sad to see if it comes out Badly that way, but understanding how many times people have had to cancel, move this around, or take dates that certainly didn't work for themselves, not went the season they might have wanted to get married in, or even the day of the week, and, and how many people had to make arrangements to be able to be at them. We've heard story after story. Um, what else do you have for us? Um, let's see, what else have I got here? Uh, the Montreal Biodome is actually working on saving a threatened species of turtles, and they're called the mm. wood turtles. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, so what they do is they uh, keep an eye on basically their certain spots in the, in, their, in the land because these turtles apparently don't like going into the water very much, and they're very picky about where they lay their eggs. Now, why some of these turtles get extinct is people often poach them because they're very good. They're, they're you know, they're beautiful colors. And, you know, when you have a nature pets, whether it's turtles or birds, please don't capture them. 
It's, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's funny, yeah. Margaret. <laughs> you know, you think about like the shells. You think how beautiful. And I always associate turtles with water, so that blows my mind. Like you know, I don't mean constantly in water, but to think of a turtle. No, no, no. no. Well, we'll put them in the water. No, you won't. Get away from me. Like that kind of thing. But it's it, they already face enough challenge. Um, whether it's getting hit by cars on roads that they're trying to cross, whether it's this kind of poaching for people to, oh, it's 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 really nice. Um, it does scare you with how there's no regard. And I, I don't know if it goes back to, you know, the old saying, someone says, well, it's just one turtle. I'm only getting, you know, not everybody's doing this. It's okay. Well, no, it's not okay. No. Um, no, it's such a detriment, Margaret. Wood turtles, yeah. huh? Yeah. And, and, and one leads to, you know, one leads to two, which leads to six, right? Now, apparently what, so what they do is um, they have uh, what they call animal caretakers and some of them go out on the streets and if they find eggs, they know how to transport them back to the biodome where they are properly incubated. Mm-hmm. And when the turtles are born, they're um, given a name tag, which uh, is, is attached to a piece of thread that's inserted into their back scale and this is to keep an eye on how the turtle's health is progressing. Nice. Right? So, yeah. so they can weigh the turtle. Um, it also makes, makes sure that the one caretaker who is taking care of the turtle will be able to see what the last caretaker did and the, and the information and that kind of thing. And then what they do is they reintroduce them to the wild and they do it by, nice. by starting them out in some little cages, uh, special cages outside. And then gradually they get back out into the wild and how they determine when they're ready to go, apparently there are two rings that come up on their backs. That hmm. And if they've got the two fully grown rings, That's great. apparently they're hel- they're, it, it shows that they're, they're of healthy. that age, I guess, and, and ready and healthy, like you say. I wonder, Megs, how, you know, the, the, in the wild, how endangered the eggs are, what the predators are. And because it sounds like that too, obviously the, the hunting or the poaching of them, but I would imagine taking such care, getting those eggs and 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 uh, hatching them, um, must be really important too to the preservation of these turtles. If you yes, if you um, go to the CBC website, you'll actually be able to see some detailed videos there about you know how they how they keep the eggs or how they even transport them. Um, but one of the things too is that people just don't watch where they're going. So of course, if you're hitting turtles that are carrying eggs, you're destroying eggs, or some people just tend to roll, roll over the eggs, like just run over them as they're driving. Right. Wow. I don't know why I don't know, you know, I don't think they mean to do it intentionally. Right. Um, but what they do is they want people, if they do see these turtles to, you know, contact either, um, the biodome itself or their SPCA or some animal control firm in their area. Right. Um, they say that if you feel like you can help the turtle get across the street and get out of traffic's way, uh, you mu- you know, you must put a pair of gloves on. You can lift them up by the back shell and take them across, but make sure you take them across and then they're facing the direction they were going because they can get pretty disoriented. But yeah, I, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of things. Out there. Yeah. The last thing you need is facing it the wrong direction and then find it back out on that road again, you know, crossing the other way thinking, Hey, didn't I already do this? Yeah, very great. Margaret, awesome stuff. Thank you. Uh, we will talk to you again tomorrow here on the program as you fill in for Bill Shackleton this week. Thank you. All right. Have a good show. Margaret Bye. Weldon joining us, of course, with the, uh, when, uh, what is this, Thursday edition of The Buzz right here on Kelly and Company. Uh, thank you. We will talk to her tomorrow. Up next, our gaming segment. Uh, Debbie will join us and get us prepared, folks, for that nice evening of games after this.
He mentioned it earlier. He did. The podcast. Well, how do you find it? You're probably wondering. A guy teased it a while ago, but he didn't go in and explain it. That's me. (laughs) Uh, You do it by simply subscribing using your favorite podcatcher. Just go on and do a search for Kelly and Company, uh, AMI, Accessible Media Inc. You'll get a plethora of programs. But when you find us, subscribe. We'd appreciate it. Maybe sometime when you're in there and you get a moment, give us a rating and review. That's the Kelly and Company podcast where you can listen to the show in segment form. You can listen to the complete Kelly and Company podcast experience where there's even an audio vanity card. Mr. Ryman is providing that today. I say, Mr. Ryman is providing that today. I'm not sure if he's actually done it yet, but uh, so I could be speaking out of turn. But check it out. You can hear that on the complete Kelly and Company podcast experience. And you can also check out the show in segment form. Maybe you heard a contributor or a segment that you came halfway through it. Maybe you heard us talking about the, the wood turtles. Well, go back and check that out via the Kelly and Company podcast. Kelly McDonald. And returning back with me, my co-host, Ramya Muthan. Yes, your uh, buzz with Margaret sounded really fun, Kelsvin. We're going to continue having fun as we bring on Debbie Williams for Accessible Gaming. Hi, I'm Debbie. Hi, I'm David. Join us as we explore Accessible Gaming. Everything from tabletop to video and RPG. May the best player win! So Debbie is joining us solo today, but the activity we're talking about is not at all a solo endeavor because uh, Debbie falls around well it's it's approaching sorry 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 we are not actually in autumn yet but soon (laughs) we will be in autumn and you have some fun ideas on hosting an indoor game night i'm really excited about this because this is kind of like a checklist segment where uh there's a bunch of things you want to consider especially when we're thinking inclusivity right deb absolutely you know with fall coming in and people are staying indoors longer the days are getting unfortunately shorter mm. so now we want to start hosting games night um one of the things that we can start with is maybe some lighting so really consider the lighting um in your gaming area most people play games in their dining room so and a lot of times they just have you know fancy lighting that doesn't always it's nice to look at but it doesn't always work so right. make sure that you have really consistent lights um bright bright lights also lights that don't really cast shadows um, yeah because then you yeah. can't come back and say i lost because i had a shadow across you know that's why i was i sucked at the game oh i'm sorry i'm spilling oh, out all my secrets here this is how kelly plays can you imagine low vision and blind game night is full of these excuses oh, uh, the man. braille was oh, scratched absolutely. out yeah I, I couldn't see there was the big spider on my page no that's a shadow oh Hey, we could do a whole segment on tips and tricks on how to, to yeah. say lies to you get know, yourselves yeah. out of game. I've heard, I've yeah. heard enough of all you guys and your tricks. And <laughs> yeah, I've heard. Well, you could try that. Anyway, uh-huh. I digress. Go ahead, Deb. Exactly. So you can also use what I've done is I've used like gooseneck lamps. Um, Ot lights are a really good um, brand. They do, they simulate natural um, daylight, daylight light. Um, and you could get goosenecks or table lights. That way it illuminates a bigger area. It's more natural. It's brighter and it doesn't cast shadows. So that's really a good um, a good way to conquer that if you're playing um, in the evening. If you're playing during the day, try to pick an area where there's a lot of natural lights, like a lot of windows, maybe a living room, family room. Um, 
in the park. That's pretty much in the park. In the park, yeah. So Dubs, <laughs> that's actually really fun. The the question I have is sometimes you have people who have different um, degrees of vision or need for different kinds of lighting. So I've definitely been the person who needs like the lamp right on my cards when I was using the, the low vision cards, and um, some people might not need that lighting so i i like the idea of the whole place being lit and not just you know a particular uh part unless it's an extra necessity for somebody what are your thoughts exactly so you can definitely make sure your whole gaming surface is well lit and if somebody needs extra lighting then you know um an extra lamp or a flashlight even or your phone even your phone light right can help if you're needing to read cards and because you don't have to have it on if it's not your turn right so you can right. use it when it's your turn so those are really good ideas and you have to try different things get creative and see what really mm-hmm. works for you well i think that's a really good point with the gooseneck and stuff like that because it, like you said somebody might say gosh guys that's too much light for me click okay go ahead now again i understand you eyes change and that could sometimes add a different element but it is really nice to take all those things into account um debbie do we want to move on to passing around dice and cards Absolutely. Here's a, okay. a, a a good tip. If you're passing around either a set of dice or cards, let the person know that you're passing to them. So you can say passing the dice on your left, or you can even gently um, grab the person's hand or, you know, gently touch their hand and hand, hand them the, the, the dice or the cards. I find when, when I'm playing, sometimes people just, they don't pass the dice, so you're sitting there going, okay, where's the dice, where's the dice? Right. Um, when I was playing with David, he had his phone beside him, so I always put the dice on top of his phone. Oh, yes, because um, he's always reaching for that anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's always, yeah. Let me make this call, but always first let me roll this. Exactly, exactly. Always in the same place. Mm-hmm. You know, just be communicative. You know, the dice are to your left or in front of you. Um, don't just leave them in the middle of the board. Nobody's nice. going to you're gonna have all these hands reaching. Oh. Um, so just be communicative and mindful of the people around you and just, you know, Especially pass it and let them know. Okay, that- if you're playing a game like Monopoly and there's all kinds of cards, cards and, and oh, stuff man. all over your board anyway. And you really could mess up imagine? a game, not just, you know, but yeah. just trying to find everything. Like once you overturn lot. something, it's it, things fly. But exactly. I, I love over-talkative game nights where everyone's mm-hmm. communicating everything. We'll get more into that as well. But how about rolling dice? The rolling dice is a really good thing that we use is we use a tray. So you can do a number of things. You can have, if, if space and you have the equipment, you can give everybody their own dice and their own tray. Mm-hmm. Or you can have one tray that, again, you just pass around and you would just gently say to the person, tray is coming to your left. And then you roll the dice. Inside the tray. This will keep the dice contained, unless you're one of those that are a very zealous roller and the <laughs> dice um, What do you laugh. recommend for trays? Does it matter? Like, I know a lot of people use things like uh, takeout containers, mm-hmm. wash them out, clean them up, and just, since you don't have to pay anything for it, doesn't matter. Edge. Anything, yeah. right? Exactly, anything, anything. We've bought trays at the dollar store. Mm-hmm. We've used, you know, like you say, takeaway trays from restaurants, any type of container that will fit the dice. Um, and if you want, you can line them with the um, 
I don't know what it's called, but you get them in a little roll and you get it at the dollar store and it feels kind of bumpy. The crate paper? You like, can or something line like that? The, like paper? No, or? it's more like a rubbery. Okay. It's more yeah. like a rubbery. The silicone so then, mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I don't know what it's called, but you can, we've lined, because I use really, really big dice. So we've lined a larger tray with that material. So then your your dice isn't making such a clatter and, and yep. it's a little bit more quiet. And um, But you, yeah, you can use any type of tray that, that you have. You can use a bowl if you want, whatever, just as long as it's something where you can keep your dice contained. Yeah, mm-hmm. Contained, and if you have big dice... Remove the mess altogether yes, yep. and just tell uh, Siri or any other pick your smart exactly. device here to do yep. it. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Well, first exactly. first move move Dave's dice off of there and then True. ask Siri questions. Exactly. Yeah. And that was another thing. You can use your smart speakers or your smart device and you could say, hey, Siri, roll a two-sided dice. Um, that Or roll three six-sided dice. So your smart devices really come in handy with nice. that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, drawing and discarding cards. Here's where communication really comes in handy. So um, when you're discarding a card, you want to let the person know that you're discarding. So you say, I've discarded the six of hearts. Um, another good thing is the trays come in handy as well. You can have a tray for your draw pile and you can have a tray for mm. your discard pile. Um, this is really helpful if you're using braille cards because they tend to slide around yeah or if you're playing uno or games that have more than you know 52 cards right then the piles get really tall and they fall (laughs) over so again you could just go to the dollar store and you can get like deep trays that are you know about the size of of your cards and you can just have one for your discard pile and, and one for your draw pile i find that's really helpful mm-hmm I do appreciate trays in a lot of different scenarios because, like you're saying, sometimes the the draw and discard piles are so close to each other that just reaching out means you're tumbling one pile into the other. Into another, yeah. Yeah, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, Exactly. Anything else with the communication and the talking, just verbalizing aspect of it, you know, calling out cards? Calling out cards is important. Also, um... When you're playing, for example, if you're playing a, a board game, we'll use Monopoly as an example. You know, keep keep the players informed of what's going on. Mm-hmm. You can maybe have one person assigned to move the pieces around. Um, okay. So if you have somebody who's either sighted or high partial, if you want, if everybody's in agreeing with that, some people want to do their make their own moves. But if if you agree and one person wants to move the pieces around, then they could say, okay, well, Deb, I've moved you to Park Place. It's up for sale. Do you want to buy it? Or I've moved you, you landed on Boardwalk, and you owe Rami a rent kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, keep telling people what's going on when you're playing um, cards, board games, anything. It just makes it more fun, right? Sometimes bantering happens that way, too. Yeah. Um, and it keeps everybody sort of engaged, everybody included, um, lots of fun with with that, you know, um, same thing with the cards. I discarded the ace of spades or whatever, whatever it is that you're you're doing. Just keep keep talking, keep people informed, you know, over communicate might actually even be good. Right. right? It's, it's it's that's for a nice sound to the room, to the event. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's actually exactly. such a good point, Kels, because I've seen, you know, I've walked into uh, card nights or whatever where people are playing, you know, nobody has low vision um, and there's just no sound. The Absolutely sounds. not. You have no clue what's going on. Like if you walk oh, into <laughs> poker games, right? Yep, yep. There's there's nobody talking and my game nights are very different because yeah. everybody's got to talk. And, and some of those, it's disrespectful to have too much but in, in, yeah. in the game. But really, if you're having that fun, whether you need that communication or don't, I think it's a beautiful thing to yeah. hear because people are having fun and that's allegedly why we're here. But I get it that for serious people in a different way of serious, and I don't mean to suggest because people are communication, they're not serious about Mm-mm. you know winning the game at all. I, I just think it's, it's a different feel. Um, Debbie, do you want to talk about a few game ideas that you have for four or more players? Absolutely. So some really fun, simple games for cards is, of course, Uno, um, Crazy Eights, the traditional version or crazy countdown um, golf. Um, and these are really fun. They're not super difficult. So you're not spending your whole, for me, I like game nights to be simple. I don't want to play a super long, complicated game. I just want to have a little bit of fun. So these are really nice, quick, simple games. And there's tons, tons, tons of games. You could just go online and go, simple card games and probably like a million will come up mm, yeah there's tons and there's also a lot of dice games we did a whole thing on dice games with you guys that uh we can revisit but snacks can we please squeeze in snacks snacks yeah <laughs> keep the, this is the best part of games night winning and snacks so yeah. keep the snacks <laughs> keep the snacks simple so just do finger foods like hors d'oeuvres Spring rolls, samosas, uh, meatballs, just little things that you can eat with your fingers. Right. Right. Um, I've been to games night where what they do is they they stop halfway for snacks. Mm. So we'll play games for, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, what have you. Then we'll stop, have some snacks, and then we'll start again. If you want to have snacks sort of during the game, you can do something like chips or popcorn or something really easy. You can give everybody their own dish. Yeah, that cuts down on the sauce on the cards. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. no, no saucy. (laughs) Another reason why you lost (laughs) I wasn't there to play the game. (laughs) I just occupied a table at the space, a space at the table. Yeah, but yeah, definitely keep it, keep it. Keep it fun and keep it simple, right? Um, the idea for games night is to play games, so snacks are a fun part of it, but it's not the whole the whole thing, right? So just have wow. you know finger foods, easy little little sandwiches if you want, or whatever helps you, you know, win at the end of the day. Exactly, <laughs> Debbie. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate the hosting game night tips. Thank you so much. Looking forward to uh, starting some. Some more hosting soon now that fall is here. Exactly. Same here. Next month, Debbie's going to be back and we'll talk more accessible gaming. And that's Debbie Williams. I'll uh, take the fact that I'll lose the game, but I'll have good food. Roundtable, folks, with Becky Zar up next. Isn't it convenient that we have a round table? Well, it's actually oval. 
just say yeah, that. The blind guy feels it now. Goes, well, I don't know. Well, I guess it is oval. Kind of oval. Here we go. The Thursday tradition, folks. We've done this since the beginning of Kelly and Company. Really appreciate you being with us. Uh, what the idea of the roundtable is, I host this roundtable. It's an open conversation on a variety of topics handpicked by yours truly. And today we welcome in to join Rami and I, uh, a voice that we had on here not too long ago as she was wrapping up her podcast. Becky Zahar joins us. Becky, welcome to the program again. Nice to have you on board. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we've got a few things to start with here. Uh, We'll get to your podcast in a few moments, but... Uh, we, we've had just so much news of late today with the Queen's passing. Um, also we want to step back a little further, uh, and talk about Saskatchewan. Um, we had a very awful tragedy over the weekend and kind of wanted to see if there may be anything you can give us in the feel. Um, so many people put on alert in three provinces, uh, some people having to shelter in place, um, just wondering, how's the environment, as we know both of the accused uh, are both uh, deceased now? Yeah, you know what? It was kind of a, just a wild, there's not even a word that can exactly explain, I think, the tempo and feeling of the environment for the last few days here in Saskatchewan. And, um, I mean, when that first alert came across and then there was, you know, consecutive other ones and updates and it just kept on felt like it was lingering they couldn't find them they couldn't find them and i mean it was like what do you do where do you go you felt so helpless and yeah. I, I think it, it created a sense of real unease because nobody i think felt safe because there was you know they're relaying that there was targeted incidents and then just total randomness that was taking place as well so um, you know, and then I, I do live in Regina, right? And so there was the talk that, you know, he might have migrated down here to Regina and Arcola. There's a spotting. And um, I was actually at the lake. And so I felt a little bit better half an hour away from the city. But, you know, my parents were in the city and my, mm-hmm. my siblings in the city. And it's like, what do you do? And how on earth do you explain that to a 12-year-old that looks to me and my husband for, you know, reassurance that everything's going to be okay? And, you know, it's... um it was challenging for sure. And I just, I just have to say that my thoughts and prayers and respect and everything goes out to all of the family and friends that were directly impacted because I think we as Saskatchewan residents and Canadians as a whole felt like we were all impacted, but we have to remember there was people that were more directly impacted than myself for sure. And man, what an incident to go through. I remember having the concerns watching the CFL game uh, from Regina and, and, just yeah. thinking of people who may not have even known what had happened or leaving the stadium or the concerns that he, he you know, they were, they at the time were, were in Regina, um, what that was like. And you really encapsulated it with, with sharing how people must have felt anywhere you turned. You, you didn't honestly know, you know, you, you, you had people worried that they just go out to take the garbage out. And with the randomness of the attacks, what if? So thanks right. for sharing. I just don't know. No, you really don't. Uh, Becky, uh, I mentioned that you have a new podcast coming out. And kind of when you were here last time, obviously, we didn't get into it. We didn't open the door. We we thought, hmm, what could be coming uh, our way? A lot of people are going to experience something very different from you in this podcast. 
Totally. I'm so excited about this podcast and the release of it. It's coming out on the end of September on the 27th is the first episode is going to be released. It's called Raising Kindness with Becky Zarr. And this podcast is, like you said, totally different than the blind reality. This one circles all around providing volunteerism and giving back in a positive way to your community, regardless of your age or your ability. You know, whatever your challenge may be, set it aside. And, you know, if you've ever considered volunteering in whatever capacity um, over the years and kind of wondered, hmm, could I do that? What would that look like? And you haven't been able to quite push your anxieties aside. Well, guess what? I'm throwing myself out there. I'm pushing our anxieties aside for all of us. And I am trying random. I'm calling random because they're very different volunteer experiences for each of the episodes. But I'm bringing my 12-year-old son and one of his adorable friends along with us for each of these episodes as well to show that regardless of your age as well, like, you know, I think it's really important as a parent to get kids involved in giving back and contributing to society in a positive way at a young age is so important. So, you know, some might look at it as I have a little bit of a crutch with me. Yes, that it is fabulous and it's great to have there with me. But I also have Lulu, my guide dog that's there. And um, spoiler alert, we've filmed a couple of episodes already and we've had a blast. It's been so much fun. The kids come out and they're all energized and from giving back and contributing. And they're like, holy, like we just did that. And I'm surprising my son. And he's like, I can't believe you did that. And, That's you know, nice. it kind of was making us giggle. Yeah. Yeah. And we want people to understand, too, this is a video podcast uh, that will be available in either form uh, from AMI and on, and on YouTube. Um, but I also want to mention, because Rum, we got into this conversation the other day when mm-hmm. we had our community reporter, uh, Julie, on, and I know I, I volunteered at a fairly young age doing stuff, helping out, getting, and, and, and I was always raised being told, oh, what a great thing. So I love that, that your son and the friend are involved. Uh, what a great angle for it. But I want to bring Rumya in here, too, because, Rum, this is kind of what Julie and you were talking about during the committee report on uh, yeah. Tuesday. Yeah, it's such a, a fantastic way to bring the conversation back, Becky, because we were saying the same thing. You know, your values as a person, regardless of how you might think uh, that volunteer work is not exactly something that you're, you know, worried uh, concerned about or not sure if you can do it well or whatever the the questions may be but i love how you said that you're gonna put your anxieties aside and Mm. just jump right in i remember one of my volunteer gigs as a teenager was to help out at the sick children's hospital um and and the ward that i they helped out was children coming out of uh all kinds of intensive surgeries and I was I was so into it, right? I wanted to work there. It was an, an amazing opportunity. But the first day that I had to actually go in and start. Now, like mm-hmm. the procedure itself was all done. I was ready to go in. But the first day I went in, I thought, what the heck am I doing here? You know, what am I going to offer these people? And I was nervous. And at that time, I, was, um, I, I wasn't even using my white cane very well. And uh, I hadn't fully come to terms with my own disability. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is ridiculous that I would think that I could come here and offer these people my support. But two days, like one or two days into the experience, I started to really understand the value that I was bringing to the parents, um, bringing to the children themselves, just giving people that time to relieve themselves from being around hospitals 24-7 for days and weeks and months, and uh, like how uh, grateful they were for my support. 
and some of them were aware of my disability and others weren't. And regardless, I felt like this was huge for me. This was adding a huge value to my life and what I was offering people. And it always sticks with me. That was more than 10 years ago. but And I've done so much volunteer work since then and before then as well. But this part of it was huge for me. So when you say um, you're putting your anxieties aside, I feel I really can empathize um, with you and with others who have to have that conversation with themselves in order to volunteer at all. Absolutely. I think that, you know, when I first lost my sight, I was, I was just, I had a plethora of support, right? And help from, you know, predominantly friends and family, but also organizations like the CNIB. So I kind of started thinking, how on earth could I give back? Like how, like, what would I possibly have? But I thought about it a lot. And, you know, when I was discussing this initial concept with my son, he was like, I'm 12. Like, what do I know? And I was like, all you have to do is go in there and be yourself. And good things will happen. And we've rolled into different, you know, scenarios where we haven't been able to, you know, conduct our volunteer help or act or whatever it was um, in the designed way that we intended that day. But we pivoted, which is life, right? And we walked over there and they're like, that was even better. Like, that was, you know, that was good. I'm like, this is how life is, guys. You just adapt on the fly. And like you said, some people have picked up on that I have a vision impairment um, and others just haven't. And they're like, really? That's your mom's guide dog? Like, really? Is she training it? And I'm like, you know, my son's like, oh, that's her guide dog. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so it's great. Well, and- I really hope that listeners and viewers enjoy it. And there is a component that the kids have snuck in there to get the viewers involved. So, mm, you know, cool. check it out and uh, check out. And I really encourage people to get involved in doing the kindness challenge put forward by the kids for each episode. So. Wow. Nice. That is really cool. Well, and I think that's the big thing. A lot of time, People volunteer, and there's a lot, and I'd love to know the percentage of how many of us really do it and realize, my gosh, I'm getting more out of this than the people I'm volunteering to support, to help Mm. in the ways I can because of what magic it does for me. So really great. Looking forward to such a different styled podcast. It's a video podcast. Uh, The 27th of September, that's when you said it drops, the first one? Yes, it is. And then each episode consecutively for the next month after that will come out the second Tuesday of the month. So that was when the Blind Reality came out. So I'm hoping the listeners got used to that schedule and will join us the second Tuesday of the month starting in October. Awesome. Very good. Well, I want to kind of stay with podcasting, uh, broadcasting presentation. Actress Sherry Shepard will host her very own talk show when Sherry hits the air next week. Sherry Shepard was part of The View for seven years, and now she breaks out on her own. She will combine a look at pop culture with real people's stories and plenty of comedy. Shepard says she asked Oprah Winfrey for advice and took 15 pages of notes. Shepard says she has also been in touch with singer-actor Jennifer Hudson, who is starting her own talk show on the same day. I'm so excited for her because her success is my success and vice versa. So there's no competition there because we are two different women. Sherry debuts Monday on Fox stations. I'm Archie Zaroleta. So it's wonderful to have a mentor when you are embarking on any job, anything that you're doing, whether it's it's business, whether, uh, you know, anything, someone to kind of show you the ropes or somebody at least in the family, a friend or whatever that you can go to and say, hey, your experience is vast, much more than me. What do you say? What do you recommend? What do you suggest? So I'm going to start with you, Rum. Uh, give Becky a moment to think on this. And, and again, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure she'll have a great answer for us. 
when you, at any point, whether it was starting this show, getting involved in anything you've done since then or before, such as the volunteerism, have you had that person, 15 pages from Oprah, can you imagine? (laughs) But that person that you could go to ask and get instantaneous feedback or, okay, here are the things you should keep in mind before. I I didn't go to too many people for feedback, but I always looked back to my experiences watching my mom in uh, in broadcasting, in media, in how she carries herself on stage, uh, on camera, in front of a microphone or behind a microphone, whatever. And the thing is, it, it was I was always around it. Right. So I, I feel like I picked up on the way she conducts herself, the the even the content um, t- that she was interested in or that she would put out there. I feel like it's always played a huge part. And really, even bigger than that, Kels, is I would just pay more attention to women in broadcasting. You mm-hmm. mentioned Oprah mm-hmm. and, and these two women that we're talking about, Sherry and Jennifer Hudson and Kelly Clarkson and all these people who are coming out now with their talk shows, but also just women who really paved the way to get their voices out there, to help others put their voices out there by utilizing their platforms and and the way that they've did it, done it. You know, we have, we have so many different styles out there that we can uh, listen to and take into consideration. Funny, fun, casual, serious um, news, you know, all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, when, when a, a woman is presenting, I feel like I need to pay attention um, just because it's, important to me. It's important that uh, we continue getting more women in broadcasting in, in all capacities. I know when I was working TV, when I started, had no prior experience except for something I did when I was about 12 or 13 years old. So I had all sorts of questions and it was finding that, that, that the people who really could t- help me out with the industry, but also what I could curtail for myself. Becky, I'm going to leave this with you because I'm curious on doing the blind reality and now with the new podcast, um, I know you obviously have your son and friend asking you about it, what to do, how to do the whole market. And now that you're doing the TV, uh, or sorry, the YouTube um, podcasting, which one do you feel, did you have that person that you went to, got those kind of notes a year ago or now? Yeah, you know, my head's going in a million directions right now because Literally within my family, I'm just trying to spin with my mind. I'm the first one that's done anything remotely like this. And so I have to be honest, it's going to sound cheesy, but you guys were really my role models because this was the first organization that I ever had worked with in a media-related setting. So, you know, Ramya, Jolita, yourself, Kelly, like Mike Ross, all of you guys have really been role models for me. But when it comes down to, like, designing and coming up with new ideas, I have to say my husband is my sounding board where I say, you know, what do you think about this? And, I, you know, what do you think about that? And am I going to lose it if I'm heading in this direction? So, you know, I really have to say I do emulate a lot of the, you know, celebrities and have to, you know, repeat exactly what Ramya said is, you know, like some of the female role models that are out there right now are outstanding. And if I can kind of, you know, emulate some of the, their patterns and what they do, I most definitely would think that that is a huge compliment. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Becky, as we move forward, doing our roundtable, as you move forward the podcast, we'll have you back, try to get you in here regularly if you have the time for us to do the roundtable and get into so many different conversations. As usual, thank you for the openness and thank you for sharing and good luck with the podcast, guys. 
Thanks so much, you guys. And it's always lovely talking to you. Folks, you can join us next Thursday for the Roundtable Conversation. We do it every week. Thank, of course, podcast host Becky Zar for joining us. We'll step aside for a moment. When we return, we'll see what's coming up on Now with Dave Brown over on AMI-tv tomorrow and uh, wrap up our show telling you what we liked and what's ahead tomorrow for the Friday edition. Stay tuned. When you're out there playing around with your podcasts, your favorite ones, using your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe to Kelly and Company. Then you can check the show out whenever you want. You can do it in segment form or the complete Kelly and Company podcast experience. Uh, today, Ramya, we started the show talking about the passing of 96-year-old Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, we really appreciated Stephen Scott getting us started and also Fern Lullum having, having some comments as well. Um, people over there in the UK who give us a different perspective uh, than, of course, what we have. But uh, just mm. for people tuning in who may not have known, um, just letting you know that now, uh, definitely check and there'll be more here on AMI-audio. Um, but uh, I'll check your, your broadcasters out there. They, uh, there's a lot of things being said and certainly something for us to stop and as much as we know, there's been some struggles health-wise uh, with mm. the Queen feeling, you know, positive and now, wow. Yeah. So I think a lot of us are, are just reeling. We have recognized and been there uh, through Queen Elizabeth II's so many of her milestones. And, you know, like her appearance is everywhere, especially in the last few years. Um, we've, we followed her, you know, yeah. whether or not you were interested in what goes on with the royals. I think it's fair to say that we, we all followed her um, throughout her life as, as much as we can. And celebrated her well with the Jubilee. Absolutely. Really Absolutely. people passionate. Yeah. So in the 96 years and especially in the last 70 years, she's been there. Like she's been there in so many different scenarios and circumstances and in whatever way we can link back to her. So uh, it is a huge loss and we are all going to be grieving in, in some way or another. Um, and like you said, I really appreciate having talked to Stephen Scott at the beginning and Fern Lullum and before her uh, topic came up. So um, we'll just keep keep going with that. Also, uh, bring in Paul Daniel here into the conversation uh, to take a peek at what's coming up tomorrow on TV over at AMI-TV now at Dave Brown. Um, Paul, certainly sure that you yourself have been following this with the Queen. Uh, yeah, I think uh, many of us, I think, saw it coming. Um, I think for me, the turning point was when she, uh, at the funeral of her husband, she looked like very, you know, she looked like every woman you've ever seen who who has to go to the funeral of her husband. And I think that uh, that was a very poignant moment for me. I th- mm. kept thinking, how much longer can this go on? And not that I was wishing for an, an ending. Uh, you know, I thought she she's always shown a great deal of res- reserve. And mm. uh, her grand her grand her mother was like 101 years old when she passed away. So that says something. Yeah. Um, on tomorrow's show, uh, well, the Friday news panel, Mike Ross will be filling in for Dave Brown, joining Dave, Jody Gupta from the Pulse and. Michelle McQuig to discuss some of the big stories. And of course, we'll be discussing the uh, the death of Queen Elizabeth II. The panel will examine her legacy and the future of the British monarchy when King Charles III, I have to get used to saying that now, yeah. assumes the throne. 
so many, you know, it's just it's hard to change. And the Toronto International Film Festival uh, comes, resumes live and in person this week. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely will give us his review of the accessibility at TIFF. And today's International Literacy Day. With that in mind, Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access will give us her feature selections of titles from CELA, exploring the impact of books and reading. It's a great way to start the, to end the week and a great way to start the weekend. And very nice. Look forward to Michael's report always because mm. for so many people that want to get to the film festival, and I remember back in the days where that was our big question, what's there to bring in the disability community? What accessibility, if I want to just go see a film, do you have there for me? Can you put it a little more front and center? And um, So really nice and always look mm. forward to when uh, Michael uh, comes on the program and gives feedback because he's so well experienced with it all. Mr. Daniel, enjoy. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care, Kelly. Paul Daniel from the uh, team over there at Now at Dave Brown. He's one of the producers. You can catch them on AMI-tv at 9 a.m. in the morning or, of course, available as a podcast. Rum, that puts a bow on it for today. Yeah, looking forward to tomorrow's convos, Kel. Yeah, so much of them ahead as we kick the show off tomorrow as producer Jeff Ryman and reporter Grant Hardy join us to uh, talk lifestyle headlines on the show. A built-in macOS tool now scans and removes malware more frequently. John Beeler, he has those details for us. Also on the show, two women from Windsor, Ontario, use their downtime to write a book. Karen McGee tells us why they decided to share their story on the program. And Margaret Weldon will join us for the Friday Buzz. And of course, we have Cut for Time on the program as well. Visit with you tomorrow right here on Kelly and Company, wherever you are out there. Hope you have a wonderful night. Fedora's off to you, folks. What's up, folks? It's Jeff here, and I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of a recap about my week that was when I was on vacation. And of course, if you listen to the vanity just before I left, I spoke about how I was going to my old cottage, and it's now owned by my dad's best friend. And we were lucky enough to get that cottage for the entire week. Let's just say it was a blast. Went up there with my mom, my dad, my brother his girlfriend, myself, obviously, my fiance, and of course, my dog. And my dog had a tremendous time. Uh, we had him on his leash a lot, uh, although we did extend it so he could run around pretty freely. He also uh, enjoyed the water. He is a lab, and so he was just uh, very, very happy in the water, swimming around with all the fish and uh um, retrieving a, a bunch of logs and sticks and all that good stuff. And of course, just spending some good family time with uh, my loved ones was always, uh, you know, something that I cherish. So overall, it was a fantastic week. It was kind of hard coming home because I was going to miss that place. Uh, a little bit bittersweet. It's always nice to come home get back into the normal swing of things, but whenever you leave a, a place with, um, you know, that many memories that I have, it's, uh, it's always tough, but it is nice to be back. 
Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.